This is the Fantastic Books Podcast. The fantasy and sci-fi book review podcast for fantasy fanatics, book nerds, and lovers of lore and stories. Covering some of the most loved fantasy series as well as brand new novels. With your hosts, Anna and Sam. Let's see what we're reading this week. Welcome back, fantastic listeners. This is Sam. And Anna. And this week, we are joined by Brian Asher, author of The Fear of Montcroy, part of the Intercontinent series. Brian, great to have you back. Yeah, it's great to be back. The third time. I'm excited. And this has been a very exciting installment in this series. Holy cow, what a prologue to start. Just to get into this world of Montcroy a little bit, we meet Davion and the Waywards, who are a group of protectors, and they're like monster killers. I definitely got Witcher vibes from it. They're super cool. They get their powers to making a pact with the spirits. Oh yeah, yeah. can we talk a little bit about the world before you go any further, Sam? Because it's more Mm -hmm. horror-based than your other books. I don't know if you've written horror before, but I feel like you were like so into this genre so quickly. Like I, it felt very fleshed out. Uh, I'm sure it's well. I feel like it's partly two things. One, it was the third book I wrote, so I've you know definitely gotten better over time. I think the second is that this book took me a lot longer to get started than the other ones. Like I immediately started my second book after finishing writing my first. The night I finished Assassin of Malkazay, I wrote the first chapter for the Treasure Lore Rev like immediately after. Um, And that wasn't really the case with this book. This one took me a lot more time to put together. And I took a lot more focus on how I wanted the world built. And then I also went back and did a lot of really strong spot editing. I had a really good editor on this one who made sure that like all the powers and stuff lined up. So I think that really helped. And as far as horror, like I'm a huge fan of horror. I always have been. Halloween's my favorite holiday. I pumpkin carve every year. I give out full-size candy bars. I watch all the spooky movies. So like, I, I mean, this definitely isn't, I think as a novel on the scary side as much as like some horror novels, but I definitely wanted you to feel like you were truly in a more sinister uh dark gritty world than my other books which felt a little more like bright and vibrant i feel like that was successful i think again like you said not like horror in terms of like it's super scary but i feel like the the creatures you created and the magic systems that you built really like mesh well together so it it feels really realized again like even just the cover art is so much darker and like grim compared to the other books so i liked the shift change i I thought it was fun and it being right around Halloween as we're recording this was fun. And I'm not normally a horror genre person, so I liked it a lot. Yeah, mission accomplished. I feel like the undertone through chapters one through five is we get this ominous uh, anxiety feeling, especially for characters like Davion trying to maintain a low profile and even our antagonists with like trying to have them figure out their ulterior motives. Yeah, I'm loving the the theme and the vibe with the horror sense. This world is very unique compared to your other areas in the Intercontinent series where anyone that has made a pact with the spirits or that is a vampire, witch, ghoul, or werewolf can't leave. Yeah, I wanted it to be a situation where I you know, I'd already built those other worlds and so I'm like, well, if these other creatures are just leaving willy-nilly it kind of makes it different. So I wanted them to be held to a certain point and also make them mysterious to a point where other places don't necessarily believe it's real. And some people within their own intercontinent don't necessarily believe it's real. You know, there's like this wall, there's this mystery, you know, they're, they're just so far removed that having them be stuck there uh, really helps serve that purpose and also do something different. I think if vampires could spread out further and infiltrate, they would because they're almost like a, a pest in the way that they are or like a parasite. You know, they're very parasitic. And so um, with the way that they spread and, you know, stay put in places. And so I felt having them be stuck there made more sense for the world and also made the magic system cooler. It's like if you're bonded to these spirits and you have to be stuck there to have that power, it's like there's a lot of stories that opens up in the future, like people seeking that power, but then the curse that they get from it. So there's just a lot I can do with that versus just like, hey, you got bit, now you're a vampire. Yeah, I thought that was really cool. It really creates consequence. Having your characters not be able to leave and forced to interact really ups the stakes because now we have like the hunters and the hunted. And at times those roles reverse between uh, our protagonists and antagonists and 
what that means because you're forced to interact yeah. now. The only thing I wish I had um, maybe set up a little bit stronger, and it's mentioned a little bit throughout, is just the idea that the vampires have a supposed truce with the humans who live like in the midland and stuff like that. So, but that was what I wanted to set up as like these vampires live and are stuck there. And so how do they find a way to continue being successful parasites while also being surrounded by witches and werewolves and warlocks in a, in a tighter space that they can't escape from? I feel like you actually answered that pretty well. I mean, I don't want to jump ahead because I know we're trying to go in order, but chapter one, once we get to talking about that, I feel like you set up a pretty good explanation of like the arrangement that the humans have with their puppet leaders of the, or the vampires have with the puppet leaders they've installed and how the humans are pretty unaware that they're essentially just living as livestock for the vampires. So (laughs) I loved that. I thought that was so cool. Insert false figureheads amongst the humans. They give them the illusion of control, placate them. And in reality, through the shadows, the vampires are in control. I thought the that was idea awesome. for that came from um, there's like a horse ranch near my friend's parents' house. It's beautiful. And I remember driving by it and I love driving by it because it's so pretty. And I just remember thinking like, what if vampires ran that? <laughs> <laughs> that's where this story sort of came from. I've always actually, I haven't done it yet. I don't know why, but I always planned to actually bring him a copy of the book and be like, your horse farm like partially sparked the idea for this. You know, I was like, what if vampires ran that? What if, you know, what would happen if all these people were basically being farmed, but not in a typical like cattle sense? Like how, how do you make that work on a scale that works for humans? Right. Cause humans don't do well when we're that confined. So how do you give them that, you know, that piece? Uh, so yeah, that's, that's where that, uh, the spark of that idea came from. That's really cool. There's a lot of interesting concepts with this because when we get introduced with the prologue, We have our group of waywards, and the leader of them, uh, Jaren or Jareen? Oh, Giren. I think it's Giren is how I pronounce it in my head. But again, they're all made up names, so (laughs) if there's different pronunciations, it's not the end of the world. So (laughs) Names are important. We like to get them right. So Giren proposes this plan that the waywards are going to infiltrate the vampiric court with a potion that allow them to remain undetected. So I love that we're introduced to this plot of uh, infiltration. You know, it's high stakes. I mean, the reason that they're infiltrating is because the vampires are also trying to develop a potion, or that's what he believes. And then that potion will allow them to either mask or break their snare, which is the the magic that like keeps them from leaving. So he's worried that if they can figure a loophole around that, They'll be able to overrun the cities and then move to other intercontinents. So it's actually pretty high stakes, like you said, Sam, but then infiltrating is also high stakes. Right. You got to prevent these vampires from potentially leaving Montcroy and laying waste to the other intercontinents. But how do you sneak in and remain undetected? And so, you know, we have this awesome mission fleshed out right in the beginning just to be like, they failed 10 years later. <laughs> When Anna and I were going over the book, you know, Anna had previously read it, but I had not. And so when we got to that part, I was like, what? No, already? It didn't work. (laughs) Yeah, and you're like, wait, what did that chapter say? Like, what? How did 10 years go by? What? Yeah, Yeah, I think um, I I could have put like a little 10 years later page in between that might have helped, but... I debated that, but then I'm also like, I think the surprise is kind of fun. I think it's fun when you like start reading the next chapter and you realize like, oh, wow. And to me, when I think of a prologue, having a prologue that is such a big jump in time, I think that's kind of, to me, I like those type of prologues. I know you guys have read like the Mistborn books, but if you read the Stormlight book, the prologue in, in the first one is like centuries before the story starts. I mean, it's like wild how long that was. And I think when I read that, it really um, resonated with me. Like, Oh, you could, you, I think of it like a movie, like it's that big opening scene. And then it's like, you know, all this time later. And so I wanted to be able to do that. And also with the style of book I write, if I flesh this out, it'd be like a 400 page book with all the different years and everything. So I was like, I'd be kind of fun to, you know, keep it in that quick succinct style. Yeah, I think a prologue works really well to set sort of the tone and the backdrop for what people are doing now and give them like all their character motivations. So like you set up 
within just a few pages of the prologue, like you gave us a really detailed setting. You gave us like hints at all these different kinds of magic because there's the potions, the vampires. We see the waywards using somebody makes like a teleportation portal. There's the snares that they have. We see all their weaponry and then this plot and then how the plot fails and how that's going to affect our one remaining wayward character, Davion, is you somehow got all of that in in like eight pages, which is impressive. (laughs) I'm I'm impressed. I'm very impressed. But I think that makes a really good prologue. Like the prologue shouldn't just be another chapter. It's separate for a reason. Oh, yeah. And I feel like it really allows us as a reader to feel how high the stakes are now for Davion because the plot failed. There is no one left for the order, just him. And he's been stuck drinking a vampire potion for 10 years. <laughs> That's nuts. Yeah. So yeah. he's so entrenched into vampire society. He's stuck. He can't just like run away or stop drinking it or back out. He's so stuck and entrenched in this. And I love that. It's trying to figure out what that next step is for him. Yeah. When he wakes up and goes and meets the farmer and everything, that was what I wanted to set is like really set the sort of melancholy blase of his time now. Like he went from secret agent du jour to uh, (laughs) being this guy who's just having to live. He's just there. He's living. He's kind of given up. I really wanted to set the the table of that life for him. Just sort of this like this guy who's just resigned himself to like, here's my punch in, punch out for the rest of my life, but in a vampire court. So a little more interesting, but <laughs> he took on such like a dull role within the vampire court. Like he even stepped away, we find out later, from being a hunter and now he just runs messages and errands. So his life is pretty bland. And the even the first chapter opens up with him having like a romantic encounter with someone, but it's like Eh, we see each other here and there. It's fine. <laughs> like nothing's exciting yeah. about his life anymore. All of the excitement has gone. All of the the glitz and the glam has faded away. Oh yeah, yeah. he's definitely in survival mode. Chapter one, like you said, he goes and visits the farmer, Duke Royson, and that's where we get all of the information about how the world has changed since the Waywards fell, because I think this human farming, quote unquote, set up after all of the waywards were slain. So it's sort of like a new development that's been finalized. And like we said before, essentially like the vampires have taken over the Midlands by setting up puppet leaders. So here he's meeting this guy, Duke Royson, and they sort of negotiate when and where the vampires can hunt the humans. So the humans don't get too suspicious, but it's pretty much just for the vampires benefit, like the whole setup. Yeah. Yeah, they're the more powerful creatures, and most of the people who live in the Midland, like, they're not, like, the richest, wealthiest people. There's very few pockets that have money. Um, A lot of these people are people who are trying, almost like old settlers or pioneers, like, they're trying to build a way of life, because where they were before, they don't have a, a choice, right? Like, they're looking for prosperity, but in that comes extreme hardship for generations you know that's what i tried to think about it's like if people move into this land what would their life really be like and that's what i thought is like well they're going to be the easiest to take advantage of that makes sense oh yeah and even kind of the politics behind requesting a second hunt in the town and fear for it being completely wiped out and i love that concept of you know if you over hunt you're going to wipe out your population you need to sustain it so you have reserves and you also don't want to get the humans too riled up because you need them placated. So there's this dynamic and balance involved. Yeah, I thought of it kind of how like, in a way, like, you know, there are people who are extremely wealthy, extremely elite, and they probably have much more say in how we, you know, our lives are versus what we notice, you know. And so I thought it's kind of the same thing of like, these vampires have so much influence because they have all that power. And there's the middlemen who kind of accept that and just try and make it work the best they can. And then the people at the bottom are just just making the most of this sort of illusionary world to them. But, um, you know, they only know like what's directly in front of them. And that's how they survive. It's pretty cool. When you were writing this, the idea of having the waywards wiped out the beginning, did you know you wanted that? Or did that end up coming through edits later on? No, I knew I wanted that. When I, I wrote the prologue and then okay, maybe the first three, four chapters, I wrote pretty quickly. Like I wrote them back to back. And then I kind of had a, a big stop because I really had to take time to understand like, okay, what is this story? What is this world? 
you know, I didn't want to just keep writing and then the story got worse. So yeah, that, that jump in the, in the prologue was, um, I always felt it was like an intentional choice. Yeah. Definitely raised the stakes for Davion having no backup. I think we just had a couple other questions in chapter one. Well, I guess one question that could be like a follow-up for how you were writing the story is that this is clearly like a vampire centric story. And I know that when we first talked to you, you were talking about doing different books of all different genres. Did you know that for horror, you wanted to go the way of vampires or did you come to vampires later or did you develop the story and then vampires fit sort of like the needs you were looking for? I I think it was always vampires from the beginning. When I think back of like, okay, what were sort of the catalysts that brought this story together? It was one driving by that, that horse ranch and like thinking of the vampire farm aspect And then when I was sort of thinking about what type of story, the idea of Davion being stuck, like having to pretend to be a vampire in that world and the waywards and all of that was like always a part of it. Like those elements, that was like the basis. But Davion actually underwent a lot of changes because originally I wasn't sure what type of story because I'm a big fan of, I knew I wanted horror and I wanted sleeper agents. Like I'm a big fan of sleeper agent stories. Like, um, well, the title of it is called Sleeper, but it's a, uh, I, I know, right? I wonder what it's uh, about. It, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's an Ed Brubaker and, and Sean Phillips uh, graphic novel, and it's exceptional. And it was one of the first times that I read a story like that, that I understood what type of story it was. So like when I talk about the story, I say it's like a horror thriller meets like The Departed, like Vampires meets The Departed because The Departed is is sort of a sleeper agent story too. I love the idea of someone sort of being stuck and then having to get pulled out. And originally I thought, well, maybe somebody from that order comes to get him after all these years. But then I thought, no, that's been done. Like Sleeper really did that basically. So I was like, well, how can I do it differently? I'm like, oh, what if it's, someone who's coming to find someone and they kind of unwittingly like find each other and this plot like develops out of these events, which, you know, we'll get into later. So, but the idea of vampires was always there. And originally I had thought of Davion as sort of being like, maybe a little bit like cowardly and he got stuck there just because, and then over time his who he was completely changed as the story developed. So the vampires didn't change, but Davion changed tremendously from how I thought he would originally be to who he became. Oh, awesome. I mean, I've read the book already, the whole thing, so I know how he kind of has, how he is. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. I do like that he was someone who was a lot more accomplished in the past and a lot more, I guess, like lively. And now we see him just kind of given up, which is sort of, again, the whole tone you set for chapter one. So I like the way he ended up for the story. I think it works well. I'm excited to find out. <laughs> <laughs> but I, that does now, Sam, since you wanted to talk about the mask, lead us into chapter two. Because <laughs> they're just so cool. In chapter one, the message that Davion is delivering is to ask for Thadric. Is it Veructicus? Veruticus. Veruticus. Okay. So he is the son of son or second in command of the house that Davion now works for. And he wanted to do a second hunt in a town that Duke Royston was not really excited. He was going to do a second hunt there. And then chapter two opens up with a character killing him. A vampire disguised as a ghoul gets killed. We're also introduced to Carnith Allard, which is the son of Regulus Allard, and they come from Offworld. Yeah, so Carnith is the son of Regus Allard, who's one of the Waywards who is in the prologue, has come back to the world, and he is the one who ends up killing the vampire that was mentioned in Chapter 1, the one who wanted to do the second hunt. But the vampire is disguising himself as a ghoul by wearing these special masks. Yes, and something that was really interesting with some of the vampire lore that you wrote into this, was that the silver rapier that Carnith uses turns the vampires into stone. Yeah. So I thought that was fun and unique, because earlier in Chapter 1, we had like the regular rules of vampires apply. Uh, you know, they had to get invited in. Uh, obviously, they drink blood. Um, Can't be in sunlight. Yeah, no sunlight. I didn't know about the garlic or the, the steaks yet, but we'll find <laughs> out. I don't think I utilize any garlic, I don't believe, but I can't remember. Mm. I don't think I utilize the garlic. I believe steaks are involved somewhere. But yes, 
yeah this sword is um that was like a work in progress because i knew i wanted this sword to be silver because i know silver is like classically a material used to defeat monsters in a lot of different stories you know the silver bullet and so on and so forth so i wanted a sword to be silver but then i also thought it would be cool if his weapon actually had a snare you know and it's his father's weapon because his father had a snare so that's how he's able to turn him to stone is that his sword has that snare and that's why the illustration for him you can see the like snare magic around it's the first illustration in the book and you can see like the snare magic around that sword the hunting masks uh i had that idea for quite some time i just had this vision in my head of vampires hunting people and putting on these masks and being able to project these powers and that's why on the cover you can see fiona she's like putting on she has the mask like she's holding it up and then there's like all these like wolves like being projected out of her and bats and all this stuff because uh the masks create that false projection which i i just think there's a lot of cool stuff you can do with that type of magical power especially in the hands of a vampire yeah i thought that was a really interesting concept because it just adds more into this espionage and high stakes scenario where anyone could be anything. Yeah. And then it just adds again to the humans being unaware that it's really the vampires behind everything. If they can make themselves look like other enemies, then they're not going to, the humans are not going to focus everything on the vampires. So it spreads the blame around. And then as we see at the end of this section, Fiona has like, woven lots of extra aspects into the masks so there's a lot more than meets the eye with those and i want to wait until we get to her chapter to talk about that because she's pretty devious and one other thing i wanted to mention too is that the fun thing about this book is there's a lot of like easter eggs that i got to really connect in this book from the others again you can read them in any order but it was cool like carneth is the son of regis who is the guy who got killed by scoria in my first book yep and he mentioned that he had a son. And then in the Treasure of Lorev, Karnath is like a really accomplished swordsman, like before he leaves the main Montcroy area and comes beyond the wall. And so like when he's using the sort of video game hologram thing, he like is looking for a swordsman and he does like a projection of Karnath because he's like known. So it was fun to just take like all those little Easter eggs and like be able to have this book bring them together, which is also why I think this book is actually the best starting point is because if you read this and then you read the others you like pick up a lot more of the easter egg i remember his dad's like last words in his battle story being like my son my son um (laughs) so yeah now we get to meet his son so i like that it all connects but speaking of his relationship with his dad he's actually come back to Montcroy and has been traveling through the midlands for a couple of years hoping to return some items to the waywards or meet the waywards but he just cannot seem to find any of them. And there's definitely undertones of the fact that he wants to become a wayward himself. And obviously, like, we know that all the waywards, except for Davion, are dead. So it's sort of a bummer that he's like, I just don't know where they are. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, We're like, oh, you sweet summer child. (laughs) Soon, soon. (laughs) Yeah, you'll find the one. But yeah. One question I do have about this world and some of the uh, big book of monsters that we have on display. Are ghouls just a classic monster that's not vampire werewolf, just sort of something creepy? Yeah, they're kind of like slimy zombies. They're like swamp zombies. Ooh, okay, cool. Yeah, so they get um, actually introduced as a threat later on or like a they get fought with later on, I guess I'll say. Uh, but yeah, they're just like a swamp monster they kind of roam in packs and yeah they're like bug-eyed swamp zombies fun terrifying (laughs) but fun (laughs) i like that you pulled from like classic horror hollywood horror with the the vampires and the ghouls and the werewolves Um, Mm. oh yeah i grew up reading and watching a lot of the universal monster movies i didn't directly think of any of those things when i was making it but i I can't imagine that any of that didn't affect me, especially when like, I think like, oh yeah, silver and all this other stuff, where'd that come from? And I remember there was um, in my library, there was like a collection in this really weird spot. It was like this odd back corner and they had all kinds of random stuff. Like they had the, um, I don't know if you remember, but the Ninja Turtles, the original comics, they would come in these giant books that were like magazine sized. They're really big and they had like all those, which was really cool. So like it was like the the real Eastman and Laird comics, which I was like, wow, they kill Shredder in the first issue. Like they just dump him off a building and drop a <laughs> grenade. 
Very different <laughs> from the cartoon. That's literally how they kill them. First issue, wow. they throw them off. They throw them off a building after they beat him up and drop a grenade on him. <laughs> it's like what? And then he comes back. The scene. Sorry, I, I promise I'll get back on track. But the scene where Shredder is in that basement. And he like shows up and the turtles like fight out of the fire. That's like directly from the comic. Like that's a full splash page, like in the comic when he returns, which was cool. But there was a section that had like these um, books of all universal monster movies. And they were just like these little picture books and they took pictures from the movies. And so I would read like Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein and Dracula and like all these books. And they were so cool because you're taking the still images from these like really really iconic movies the way they were filmed was so cool and then you put that in still images in a book that like i'm reading in the back corner of a library like how cool is that you know so that was definitely like my introduction to like halloween horror spooky stuff (laughs) that's cool long way around to get to my point but (laughs) hey it's all about the journey you know yeah (laughs) and i feel like there's a lot of creative elements with these classic tropes and again like i keep harping on this mask but like i think that's just such a unique piece of magic was there like a, a light bulb moment for that? Was that something you knew you wanted to incorporate early on? It's hard to say for that one. I I just remember like, and I didn't even write this scene in the book, but I just remember a scene in my head. It was more like a scene of the vampires hunting, like what the chapter two, uh, like it opens with Kerneth killing them. But I had in my head, I was visualizing the vampires like standing in, in like an overhead area, looking over these people getting ready to put their masks on, like communicating with each other. How would that work? You know? And so that idea of them just like hunting. And then I'm like, at first it was just a mask. And I was like, no, it makes more sense for it to like project these images. It totally makes sense. So, but then I ended up kind of jumping ahead and not writing that scene. Um, that idea of that scene though, I'm saving because I, I do want to write a story of like the vampire court post fallout from the events of this book so but that's that's a ways away that'd be good. very cool yeah there's a lot of magic yeah. i feel like you could play with in this one that again could lend itself to lots of different stories speaking of other books like did you intend for Carneth to be a big character when you were writing malcose and you're like my son lives on <laughs> <laughs> i I, a lot of the Easter eggs early on were just things that I put out there because it would give me plot elements that I knew I could use to make the world feel more fleshed out, but would also not be too interruptive for the reader. So they're like, wait, what is this? You know, like, why do I have to read all these other books? You know? And so I knew I wanted to do something with him. Then as I was making this book, I was like, okay, he needs to be a character in this how does he fit in? He actually, as I was writing his character, he fixed the story because I didn't really, I knew Davion, I knew the vampires, I knew all that stuff. And then I was like, okay, like, where does Carneth play into this? And then as his role fleshed out, it actually made the story more cohesive. Yeah, he became a much bigger part than I initially thought. Yeah, he's like the element that ties them all together. The rogue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so uh, chapter three gets a little bit more intense where we figure out the origins of the potion that Davion's using to blend in with vampiric society. He has to visit Peregrine the Witch, and right now he can only afford to get batches of the potion for about a month at a time. But he wants to save up enough money to uh, buy the rights to the potion and the recipe so uh, he can make it himself. That's going to be an interesting plot line. I'm really uh, curious to see how that's going to play out. Because, you know, if you (laughs) buy the recipe, then can you brew it? Do you need to be experienced enough in potion craft? I'm wondering as a wayward if he already has inherent knowledge to do so. So for me, that was definitely going to underline like side mission in my head that I'm like, I want to keep my eyes and see how that plays out. I first showed it. I was more concerned about the fact that he had to go to get the potion every month. And I was like, man, if a vampire just catches him, he's going to be in big trouble. Like he has to make this trip every month to visit the witch. Like it's pretty obvious. And then he even says how he likes to keep a lot of the potion on hand. So I was like, oh, you idiot. If somebody goes to your room, they're going to catch you. What are you doing? <laughs> yeah, I can totally see how that would play out. What are you doing here? Uh Nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I just got so nervous for like how tenuous his position is in this vampiric court because he does have the abilities of a vampire now with this potion. That's what it does is it like it masks him. It even masks his snare because like your snare literally shows up as like a ring 
a glowing ring around your wrist, like a magical like ring of light. And so like his is transformed even to look like a vampire's magical snare. So I thought that was an awesome extra added element that you were clever enough to put in there. But again, if anyone figures it out, like he's not actually a real vampire. They're still way more powerful than him. And so I just feel like he's he's in too <laughs> deep now. There's yeah. <laughs> There's got to be some risk. It can't just be all hanging out with Royce and uh, <laughs> drinking wine. Kids just hang out and drink wine. <laughs> <Yeah>. Exactly. <laughs> and then we also, when he goes and visits Peregrine, you put in this nice flashback of the first time he went to get the potion from her and how he sort of like thinks about his time emerging as the only surviving wayward and how he had to continue to like uphold this facade of being a vampire in this flashback or like reminiscent moment, he reveals that Peregrine told him to talk to a different witch, Penelope, who was the person who sold the original potion that the Waywards were concerned about the vampires using to mask their snare to House Malnuvius, Hathric Malnuvius in particular. Davion is sort of like at a weird dead end because he looked into this as he was doing his whole investigation and Hathric was murdered by the vampires when all the waywards were murdered because they thought that he actually masked the waywards and snuck them in to try to infiltrate the vampire court and help him so there's lots of like crossed political lines and lots of confusion and political intrigue going on amongst everybody in the court and it's just making it really hard for Davion to untangle this mess that he's in and figure out what actually happened yeah when I was writing it I had to think what would I try and do to solve this? And so how do you cut those like those narrative threads so that he can't solve it? So yeah, all those things you pointed out uh, were things I had sort of figured out as I was doing like more of the editing pass, because otherwise you can have some massive plot holes, you know, uh, <laughs> like why can't he do X, Y, and Z? So him coming there was like a good way and reminiscing was a good way for him to like bring all that to light to the reader. They wouldn't get uh, disillusioned with the story by feeling like, well, this could be quickly resolved. No, I didn't feel like that at all because you end up just feeling as stuck as Davion is in his investigation because we have the same level of pieces of evidence that he does and they're all dead ends right now. So it's very frustrating to watch him just sort of stall out, yeah. not know what to do. But at the same time as readers, it's like, well, I wouldn't know what to do either. Like, I don't have any, I don't have some magical fix for this. Right. <laughs> And as someone who, like, I talked to you about this, like, when we actually met up in person, but, like, I'm trying to write my own book, too, and, like, finding ways to create political intrigue or confusion between characters without being too mysterious or, like, overly heavy-handed is actually a really tough balance. So I like the the way that you did it in that it was a flashback. I felt like it gave us just enough information to really up the intrigue and keep us going. Yeah, that was the hardest part when writing this book is like making the political intrigue entertaining. And as I was writing it, I'm like, man, I feel like I'm totally failing at this book. And then when my wife was like doing her her wifely first pass that she always does, she was like, oh, my God, I love the court stuff. It's my favorite part. I'm like, OK, well, if she's enjoying it and she doesn't really normally read any of this stuff, then, OK, I'm doing something right. <laughs> so <laughs> right on. <laughs> yeah, it's a tough balance to like do politics in a book because like some people love it and some people hate it but if it's so central to the plot like it is here i feel like you have a good balance of peppering it in i think also like and you'll i'm sure you've run into this as you're writing this type of stuff is that when you're the author you either know all the answers or you're finding out all the answers as you're writing it it sometimes makes it hard when you're writing these scenes where people don't know to feel like, oh, well, of course, it's like X, Y, and Z, because you know it, but nobody else does. Just like if you watch, you know, you watch those shows where like the detective's on the case, but like they show you who the villain is. So you already know what's going on. And then you're like, if he would just do X, Y, or Z, he would solve the problem. <laughs> so like, I feel like sometimes when you're writing this stuff, it's like that creeps into your head subconsciously of like, I have all these answers, even though the reader doesn't. So for the reader, it's fine, but it's hard to like, take that part out of your brain to be able to like make it work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because Davion's been at a dead end for a decade, it was really fortunate that Dadric was murdered because now the vampires want to find out what's going on. But so does Davion because he's thinking maybe it's potentially someone that survived from the order. So this is like a catalytic 
event that's really pushing things forward for everyone. It's like a race against time to find out who this person is first, because if the vampires get to him, it's going to be outnumbered and killed. But if Davion can find this person, you know, potentially can they team up and get out of his current circumstance? (laughs) And it's almost like what you just said, like, not necessarily we see the villain and we're watching the detective try, but like, we've seen yeah. Carnith and he's wandering around looking for the waywards. And then we see Davion and now we see the vampires all honing in on this mysterious killer who turned a vampire to stone or ash, who we all know is Carnith. And we're sort of watching them all circle around each other until eventually they're going to collide. But I like that how quickly the plot like came to a head at the end of chapter three, where it was Davion wants to find the killer before everybody else does because the vampires are now saying they should find the killer of Thadric. But Davion, like deep down, is like, oh my god, it's probably a resurfaced wayward. I have to find them. So it it makes it all of a sudden like into a race. So his life in two chapters went from like, oh, I'll deliver this message to holy shit, I need to hurry up. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Hold my wine. I'm on a mission. Oh, so true. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, I think that's like, again, partly with my style is like, I just want these books to move quickly. Could I flesh out more in between? Yeah. But if I'm if I'm going for the, the beach read, the Fantastic Pods beach read, I got to move quickly. So <laughs> I feel like you end up condensing your book down to exactly what would be saved if it was turned into a movie. Like, you know, when they turn books into movies, they cut out lots of stuff. I feel like your books are exactly what would be on the screen. And that's all the action and the the juicy parts that people want. Like we can put the dots together of like what's happening off screen. And then you just give us like the fun action parts every time. Did I ever tell you guys, speaking of, because I'm like very visual and I think of it as like movie scenes when I write. Did I ever tell you about the storytelling element I learned from Desperate Housewives? No, go on. No. (laughs) (laughs) So my ex-girlfriend, when I lived in California, obsessively started watching Desperate Housewives. You could get like the DVDs at the library, right? That's how it was. That's a dated statement. (laughs) (laughs) so you know it's like some of those shows are you go to every library they've got like desperate housewives entourage they always have some seinfeld you know there's like the section so i love seinfeld seinfeld's top notch but yeah uh, i was watching with her one thing they did that i always remember that like i checked a box in my head of like oh i have to remember that is they did a really good job about when it when a character would know something and they would go to meet another character to tell them something instead of that character just restating all the crap that they knew, that you knew, that we all knew, they would come to meet them. The person would be like, what's going on? And then they would like move the scene to something else. But you knew that they told them that. And so I tried to think that way of like, okay, if you're writing this story and you're trying to move quickly, like what are moments where I can put two characters together where things can be told and resolved where I'm not just restating things that the reader has already heard stated? Because then to me, that's just like, it's filling time. It's also like boring for the reader, unless it's something that, and there's like a specific kind of flashback moment, unless it's something that's that in the story happens, that's a little more pivotal. And then it's worth them kind of digging into their thoughts and feelings about that moment. Uh, but if it's not something like that, then it's like, to me, I don't want to just regurgitate all that information for the reader. So that was like one thing I learned from that show that I was like, oh, that was really clever. I don't know who they hired that told them to do that, but... Kudos. No, that's smart. It's like, if we've seen the character find out about it, do we really need to see them then tell their friends what we've already seen? Yeah. Yeah, again, like you you don't waste any time like telling us stuff we already know. And that's actually something I struggle with. I'm an overwriter. Like I just write like way more than the required amount every time, even for like school, like extra pages longer than I need. So um, I, I, yeah, I appreciate the streamlined approach that you take though. I can learn from it. Fast times on Moncroy. So yeah, so now that you've amped up everything in the plot to being a race to find Carnith, we're introduced to a new character, Yaspin. And I actually am really intrigued by him. He's been a vampire who's been defanged and kicked out of the court. But he's made a career of trading goods into the cities uh, from the Midlands and sort of like being uh, an in-between between between, like vampires and 
other worlds and, you know, moving goods around. He's become a pretty rich and successful merchant. So I like those types of characters that trade not only in goods, but like information as well. Yeah. Since this is sort of a slightly spy-esque story. So he's a great aspect to have in there. Yeah, I was going to say he he came in on a whim too. I never planned for him to be in the story. I remember I was sitting down to write. I was like, okay, I knew Carneth was going to try and like Carneth had to figure out like what's going on, right? He's got a mask. There's all this weird stuff. Nobody knows about the wayward. It's like, what the heck? They're acting like they're all deserters. Like what happened? And so I'm like, he has to go to the mask to somebody. Who does he go to? And so then I was like, oh, he should go to like a merchant who's like, you know, a back dealer kind of guy. This world deserves that type of character. And then I wrote the chapter where he's introduced to Yaspin, where Yaspin's like eating the steak and having to like suck the raw meat into like the holes where his fangs were and all that. I wrote that. And then I just remember writing, like, it was funny. I was sitting down and I was writing this character and I was writing his introduction. I'm like, man, this guy is like really cool. He's going to, I don't know. I I feel like there's going to be more for him involved. I thought it was originally, he was just that one scene and then maybe a couple others. And then as I, I was like developing the story. I'm like, man, there's so many pieces that this guy is involved in. And he became my favorite character. Like, I love that character. That's why he's my profile pick on all my bios. I love the illustration Christian did for him. Like, it's such a cool illustration. It's exactly what I I wanted, which was like vampire merchant, like Lemmy from Motorhead. (laughs) So yeah, like I just, I I don't know. I fell in love with this character because like the idea of it's so cool, like to me. You know, and then the ideas behind him being defanged and how does he survive and what does he do to make things like work for himself. So, yeah, he's he's a super cool character and I plan on utilizing him in the future in other books because he's going to be like Franco, like where he has these connections and all this information and he can kind of be, you know, another liaison to all these sort of other information people amongst the other intercontinents. Ooh, the secret society. Awesome. I really liked him. <laughs> yeah, I remember reading because again, I have read this. I remember really liking him. So I'm excited that he's gonna be a recurring character. Because not only was he like useful for information, but just the idea of someone who's been completely kicked out of his own society could live his life very bitterly and, and just feel full of scorn, but he makes the most of it and ends up building like a whole second life for himself as a merchant. I just like his sort of like spunk, I guess, of like, full fine, I won't be in the vampire core anymore, but you're not gonna ruin my life. <laughs> Yeah, like an ostracized, disgraced vampire. My one goal for him is like, let's get this guy some Lorevian uh, vampire fangs and get him rolling again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. I thought that's another thing, too. I'm like, oh, I have that opportunity. So, you, you know, there's just, I don't know, there's a lot you can do with this character. And there should be like these type of characters and stories are always really interesting. And it's cool to have somebody that has the opportunity to kind of pop up all over the place. While we're still talking about it, that's my big question. It's a great punishment where if you're getting like banished by your vampire tribe to be defanged and kicked out, did you specifically have that in mind because you have the cyberpunk vampires from Larev? Or it was just a creative happenstance that there's a, a similar foil situation happening? Uh... I don't think, I mean, it's hard to think back on the time. I don't think I'd done that because of the lore rev stuff. Although I think after I wrote it, I was like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. I might have to reference that. No, I I just thought it would make sense for multiple facets. Like one, if he's a vampire who's this merchant and the humans believe there's a truce, like how much more does that incentivize that there's a truce, right? Mm. How much more does that incentivize that if, you know, there's a vampire out and about, killing somebody they're not part of this right so i just felt like there's a lot that could be really cementing certain elements of this story and also it was just a cool idea like man if this guy has his fangs ripped out but he's still alive like what does he do and it's like okay like how does he deal with that like that was another big thing for me yeah no it was cool he's definitely a very creative character while Carneth is having this exchange with Yaspin, he shows him the hunting mask. And, you know, Yaspin knows what this is, but only doles out so much information. And he says he, you know, recognizes it from House Veructus, gets him pointed on the path of investigating. And then, of course, he gets, Yaspin gets to keep the mask. He weasels this sort of deal with Carneth so that Carneth is asking about the waywards and now through this exchange has finally figured out 
that all the waywards infiltrated the vampiric court where they were found out and they were killed. Unfortunately for Karnath, like he feels like he's now at a dead end sort of in the same way that Davion felt like he was at a dead end a couple chapters ago. And I like this cycle of as one character feels like their plot is dying down, the other character's plot is amping up and it just kind of goes in this cycle of like, until they meet up with each other, like Karnath is now kind of bummed out. Davion's all amped up and like it, it goes back and forth. The momentum is maintained. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Sam had written a question in our notes and it's something that I know the answer to because I have read it. <laughs> but he, he was just sort of like predicting and wondering out loud, like of the other waywards, like who else left from Moncroy? And is there a chance that they'll come back to Moncroy the way that Karnath has now come back? There's an opportunity for that. I don't specifically know. I was vague intentionally so there were certain characters like that left that i was like okay i might do x y or z with them in x y or z story or they might pop up as a character in i have something else i'm working on it's kind of like a graphic novel project i'll probably have one of like those characters pop up there because the area where it is it makes sense for them to pop up in so there's little little spots but with a lot of that easter eggy stuff i like leaving it vague enough to where i can i can utilize it when i need and make it work for me because I'm not as, like, I have lore, I plan my lore, I, you know, try and do the best with it. But I'm not as, like, Tolkien with it, where he's got, like, <laughs> he's got his Bible. Or, like, uh, Frank Herbert from Dune, right? Like, the, that guy took, like, three years to just build the world. And um, that's cool. But I like the idea that you could take things different directions where they see fit. Yeah, I think that's actually a smart way to, like, leave it open-ended for yourself if you know that you want to be able to write more in the future. That's why I never have maps in my books. <laughs> I think you told us that before. Yeah. I think that's smart. It's nice that because there's nothing clearly defined, you don't have to, you know, readjust the rules. It's fluid. I think growing up a fan of comics, I just saw so many retcons that people had to do that I was like, how do I avoid that? And I was like, mm. oh, yeah, you don't stick yourself in a corner. <laughs> yeah. So I just watched a really interesting documentary on like the X-Men comics and all like the writers and editors on it. Mm. And, you know... When they did the whole Dark Phoenix saga and they killed off Jean Grey and how, you know, she was supposed to remain dead and they tried to bring her back and it was like not, you know, well received at all because it just takes away any of the emotional implication of a major character dying. So, you know, it's a good point. Like never put yourself in a corner. Did you, um, was Jim Shooter in that documentary? Yeah. Okay, he's awesome. If you, uh, he's like, um, if you ever go on YouTube, I always randomly, like, if I'm in a creative space, I always, or I'm like working my novel, I love looking up interviews of him at like Comic Cons and stuff because he's like the old man with all this knowledge and he tells all these cool, like, behind the scenes stories of how everything came together. And it's also fun because he's that, like, grandpa who, like, everything revolves around him solving everything correctly. And people needing him. And like I don't know, he just, you'll know when you see more of his stories that like it always resolves around like, oh, so-and-so said this and they couldn't figure it out. And then <laughs> I came and saved the day. But they're great stories. Yeah, no, it was like fascinating that essentially Marvel signed him on to be the person to like maintain continuities and, you know, fix storylines. So yeah, it was just, it was really cool. Yeah, if you ever look up his, I, I'll probably send you some YouTube interviews, but I there's a lot of his wisdom that I use in my own books. Like one thing he said that really stuck with me is he's like, every comic is one unit of entertainment. And so with my books, that's how, when I was really putting my books together, that's how I thought is like, okay, each of my books is one unit of entertainment. And that's why they're complete stories. Because I feel as a new author, I need people to feel like they're getting a complete piece of entertainment. Cause what if I write three books in a five part saga and then, you know, I get busy with my kids and I never finish it. Right. And so to me, it's like, I think this is a better promise uh, to my audience. Yeah. It's hard to buy into sometimes the really big series. Like if you know that the author is either not going to finish it, <laughs> Patrick Ruffles, or, <laughs> or it's going to take a really long time to finish it. Like the, the buy-in is huge. And like the the payoff needs to be huge then. And I feel like sometimes just having those like little quick bites of a story is equally as satisfying. And it's like, you know, I get the whole thing and I feel it's like a movie, you know, versus a series. Yep. Yeah, sure. I mean, even look at, you know, series like Wheel of Time, it's massive. And that's part of the reason why I never got into it. You know, it has so much praise 
that's an investment. And I like that idea. I love callbacks. That's why I really enjoy the Nerd Content series where, you know, we have these little Easter egg moments, but you don't have to then read 13 books to figure out what happened to a character way back. You know, you get much more instant gratification. And the way you do your callbacks, if I have forgotten a character and like miss the callback, it's not going to affect the story. Like I don't need to be like, oh crap, what did that person say 15 books ago? I need to remember it all of a sudden. It's more like a nod to the readers than it is an are you paying attention kind of, of callback and Easter egg. And I like those because those are more fun for me. Yeah, cool. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the last chapter because this is where we get sort of our like villainess vampire. And she's <laughs> suave and sexy and cool, and I like her. <laughs> <laughs> everybody likes her. It's when I put the art up at the Comic Cons, that's always the poster everybody likes. Of course, wants, of course. So. Team Countess Fiona. <laughs> I would. <laughs> So we, yeah, like as Sam said, we're introduced to Countess Fiona. Is it Mayer or Mayere? Mejir, I think. I believe it's oh, Mejir. I think. Mejir. Even cooler of a name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and little tidbit. The little connection that we made too is that the person that Davion is sleeping with in the open of chapter one is her niece, Adelina. So he's like sort of connected to this house too. Yep. But she's actually the one who makes the hunting masks, which I think is very cool. And then in two seconds, we learn it's also very conniving because she's, as I mentioned before, built all this extra magic in. She originally figured out how to make the masks when she was working with House Malnuvius to develop the potions that were supposed to mask the snare. And we also find out that the potion was not successful in the end and that she let Malnuvius take all the blame for the fallout from that. So she has gotten off scot-free. Conniving. (laughs) Very conniving. Oh, and doubly, triply conniving. She actually set the trap for the waywards and leaked this info that they were making a potion to mask their snare. So she had sort of engineered this whole scenario that we saw in the prologue, but then she didn't expect the waywards to reverse engineer the potion so that they could hide in the court as vampires. So like, again, just like the, the politics get all jumbled up really fast, but she's sort of the mastermind pulling strings behind the scenes. And if Davion finds out who he's sleeping with, oh, <laughs> it's going to get real. You get a stake in the heart. You get a stake in the heart. <laughs> Well, I love the fact that these masks have, lack of a better term, bonus features where, like, (laughs) she can access, you know, who used it last and what they saw. I think that's brilliant. That's so cool. Yeah. Well, I was was thinking about this character as I was developing that chapter. And I'm like, what are all the things? Like, I was like, she, I knew from the beginning, okay, she's responsible. How do I make her responsible? How do I close all these loopholes with all these different moments? Like, how do I fold, you know, this this piece of clothing together to fit fit in my luggage, you know? So for her, it was like all these different pieces came together. So I was like, oh, yeah, it would make sense if she had X, Y, and Z. Why would she give up this information to these other people? She doesn't have to. And then, like, the, the vampiric court, they're all stabbing each other in the back in a way. Uh, or they're all... They're all in it for themselves. They're all in it for themselves. Yeah, they're all looking for their moment. And so I thought for her, it's like, oh, it makes sense for her to be in charge of this huge piece of their existence now. Like now that things have moved on 10 years, these masks and this setup and everything put together, her being a part of that. And also the idea of like, you know, if you're this, you know, we see it even in our own politics of like, you have this kind of administrative state who like is around forever. And they probably are much more involved in how things are run because they're They're not taken in or out by election cycles. So they have all this intrinsic knowledge. They have all this stuff. So it's like, sometimes it's more beneficial to be like periphery second in command than it actually is to be fully in command. You don't take the blame. You get more influence. You last longer. You get to make more decisions. You get, there's, you have bigger relationships, longer relationships. So it's like, it actually makes more sense for her to be in that role than to be at the top role. In the shadows. Yep. And again, just adds to that intrigue and espionage and backstabbing. It's so good. <laughs> yeah, she's a lot of fun. She's a she's a super cool character. So. Yeah, I like her a lot. And her like the the whole section that we read ends with her actually 
using, as Sam said, the bonus feature (laughs) of the mask. So she puts a a different potion on it and it reveals on a mirror to her like what it last saw. So she actually gets a visual of Karnith and that gives her a step ahead of everyone, but she still doesn't actually know who he is, but she has an image now of like who they're looking for. So she sets her niece Adelina on getting information from Davion so that her house can get to Karnith first, especially because she's interested in his magical abilities and like the snared weapon he had that we talked about before. And she just wants to, you know, be top dog still. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I, I love this character and the drawing, the illustration Christian did on the front and inside is just outstanding he nailed it with all since this is the last chapter we're covering today i might as well cover his art but yeah his illustrations for these characters was everything i could have asked for this is probably the some of the closest i've ever had to like really bringing them to life like this i think the images look great and we definitely will post it on our social media if that's cool with you so that people can see it too yeah because the the images are really really good and different from the other books and i feel like they captured not only like the characters but like the whole atmosphere you were going for in the book it's more spooky style yeah (laughs) (laughs) well i'm a huge fan i think my favorite anime movie of all time is vampire hunter d bloodlust yes it's like the one that came out in 2000 absolutely love that movie i would say that's a huge inspiration for me with like sort of my like if i visualize this as a movie it would look that way and so I wanted someone who could conjure that type of art, sort of that Yoshitaka Mono style. And when I saw Christian's art, it was like, wow, this is everything I could have ever asked for. Did I ever tell you the story of how I found it? I can't remember. I think you told it in a different episode. Probably. I but yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> but yeah, his booth was tipping over at a Comic-Con. And I helped put it back up. And then I looked at it and I was like, oh. This is exactly the art I was looking for. Okay, you definitely did not tell that story. That's hilarious. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I was literally like, I went to go, like, I like doing this at the Comic-Cons. Like, I go walk around and talk to people, like, usually day two, because my booth's already put together. So I was talking to this guy. We're chatting about comic books, and and I was telling him what I was looking for. Um, His art wasn't that type of art, but we were just chatting, and so I was telling him about that. And then he looks over, this booth tips over, we pick it back up, and as we put it back together, he looks over at me and goes, hey, man, I think you found your artist. Uh, That's awesome. And I was like, yeah, I think I did. That's a great (laughs) story. Oh, my God. (laughs) The universe delivered. Yeah. Yeah, the, it did. It did. And I've been so, and it was funny because Christian, that he wasn't even running that booth. It was his friend. It was in Arizona. And then, because I'd never seen Christian's art before, although I had unintentionally, because he does magic cards. I'm a big magic card player. So, uh, but yeah, so then I, I actually, he came to Seattle and I went to the, up to his booth because I looked on the list. I'm like, wait, he's here. I could talk to him in person. So I like brought him my books told him what I wanted to do, told him about the vampires. He's like, yeah, man, I'm in. He's this just super chill guy. He's like, yeah, man, I'm down. I'm in. So I was like, okay, cool. And then, yeah, long story short, here we are with probably the most beautiful book cover I've ever That's had. That's awesome. So. What a, like, meant to be kind of story. Yeah, yeah. I did not write down any predictions because, again, to reiterate, like, for the 50th time, I already read the book. Yes. <laughs> but Sam wrote a couple of predictions. One is pretty obvious. He guessed that Carnith and Davion will team up. You're on the right track for sure. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yep. Prediction two was Yasmin might know how to uncover some of the mass secrets or he'll wear it and kill people as a disguised ghoul. Ooh, that's an interesting one. Because I, I just feel like he knows more than he's letting on. Oh, yeah. And I feel like we're we're not done with him. And I think he needs to somehow reinsert himself in disguise. That's a really good prediction. And um, I don't worry, I won't take too long, but this brought up another point is when he, when I initially wrote that chapter of him meeting Karnath, I was like, Yaspin was just giving him all this info. And I'm like, wait, this dude wouldn't just give up all this info like that. He pulled all that. Like, why would he just be like, Oh no, here you go. I trust you. He'd be like, no, he wouldn't give him all that info. He'd, <laughs> he'd just string it along and, and, and twist it a little bit and lie a little bit. Cause he needs to be able to control, manipulate any other circumstance in the future. Like if these vampires are like, Hey, did you say X, Y, Z? He's like, no, I never said that. I said, you know, A, B, and C. like, you know, so, so that's a good point. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. So. He knows everything comes at a price. <laughs> He's crafty. <laughs> he is, yeah. 
Lots of Canucks. Those are good predictions. I wish that, I mean, not that I wish I hadn't read the book because I had a good time reading it already in full, but I wish that I could have made predictions as we go along like we usually do. But we'll have to rely on Sam for our predictions this time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it was funny because like when you were asking me what my predictions were on, uh, I was like, I have a few, but mostly I'm just like excited to see how the events are playing out. Like we got enough craziness going on that it's hard to make a really solid prediction because things can change at the drop of a hat. So I'm excited to see where this, you know, goes. Yeah, I think these first chapters gave us like a great overview of like all the players on the board. And so now we get to see how the board is played. Yeah. And I can't wait for Viona's like dramatic yeah. villain speech eventually to Davion and like, you know, she'll just grind him underneath the heel of her stiletto and just be the bad bitch that she is. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I think on that note, perfect. All right. Well, thank you so much. Sorry we had to record from, you know, I'm in a hotel and we're all in different spots this time, but we will be covering. (laughs) Yeah, you're in your kids' rooms. (laughs) Uh, I think chapters six through 10 are for next time. So we will see you next time for that. All right. See you then. All right. Thanks so much, Brian. Bye. With that being said, fantastic listeners, catch us next time as we cover chapters 6 through 10 of The Fear of Moncroy, continuing our conversations with author Brian Asher. And as always, listeners, happy reading. Thanks, listeners. If you're looking for more, check us out at fantasticbookspod.com, where we have book reviews, reading list suggestions, merch, and you can even send us a message. Or find us on Facebook and Instagram at Fantastic Books Pod. And if you like what you've been hearing, don't forget to leave us a review. Thanks. Thanks. Golden Rise Media.